You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Curtain up, theater people, and welcome to a special series of Your Program is Your Ticket. Coming to you from Midtown Manhattan, right in the middle of Broadway. My name is Sean Chandler, and I'll be your host. Your Program is Your Ticket is a discussion of smaller theater works and the people and organizations that make it happen. As many of you know, Your Program is Your Ticket is a helpful system where your program is literally your ticket to get into the theater and smaller, more intimate productions. It's these works we like to highlight, and it's our goal on this show to feature as many of these productions as possible while still discussing the biggies. I love theater and see as much as I can wherever I go. During the travels of the production of My Husband and My Play at The Flash, I've met many wonderful people from all over the world in the theater community, and it is my honor to bring them on as guests to the show. Tonight's show is part of a special series of interviews for the 2018 Frigid Festival here in New York City. Founded in 2007, Frigid is an open and uncensored theater festival that gives artists an opportunity to let their ingenuity thrive in a venue that values freedom of expression and artistic determination. How excellent is that? I love that. Now, I recently had the honor of sitting down with the superb, passionate artists within the Frigid Festival to speak with them about their individual shows, their wonderful experience with Frigid Festival, and their overall thoughts on theater itself. My guests on this episode are Andrea Alton from Molly's World, Mike Lemmy from 50th and 4th, and Rich Kameda from an internment camp magic show. All great shows. I'm really looking forward to, to you seeing them and, and uh, enjoying them. Now, these three shows are so different from each other in presentation and all deliver in education and entertainment and edification. Now, I just know you're going to find all of the artists to be delightful. Now, quick note, as you listen, you may hear some minor differences in audio. These interviews were recorded at separate times and sometimes at separate locations. Not that that takes away any of the enjoyment out of the experience of these fabulous artists. Just letting you know in case the sound feels different. So, folks, without further ado, please enjoy interviews with Andrea Alton from Molly's World, Mike Lemmy from 50th and 4th, and Rich Kameda from an internment camp magic show. Folks, please welcome to the show, Andrea Alton from Molly's World. Hi, Andrea, and welcome to your program as your ticket. Hey, Sean. Nice to see you. Oh, my gosh. I've been looking forward to this interview. I have, too. I get to hang out with my friend. I will. And, uh, friend, and also, I have to I have to declare this. I think it's just something I should do. Andrea is also my publicist, and she is the best publicist in New York City. Uh, she is so, 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 so popular and I'm so lucky to have her and I, I think I'm your first podcast right you are my first podcast oh my so gosh. I'm learning and I, it doesn't it feels like you know already oh good <laughs> it's all smoke and mirrors <laughs> and you are in a show called Molly's World so yes. tell our audience about Molly's World um this is another solo show with my character Molly Equality Dykeman who's a bit of a train wreck she she loves her pills booze and ladies and um she's a security guard at PS 339 in the Bronx and um Molly is putting on a show because everything's been bad since that guy got elected everybody's been so depressed so she's trying to pull together a show to make people happy and um, and basically, she thinks she's doing the show at Madison Square Garden, and it's actually the basement theater at Under St. Mark's. So, <laughs> so <laughs> she gets confused. Now, this will be this will be my third version 
of Molly. And the first one was at uh, Fringe, which is where I yes. met you two years ago. And it was a microwave burrito. Filled with the coli. Filled with E. coli, <laughs> which, which is, was a great title. I saw it. I howled. I screamed. And then um, somebody, Kathleen Warnock, who yes. uh, I've known for a while, we met through the, uh, we connected through the festival, said, um, Andrea is a great publicist. If you ever need a publicist, call her. So I called you, and I'm like, this doesn't sound like Molly. Oh, that's at all. right. I remember that. I said, I was expecting yes. Molly. She has a completely different yeah. vocal pattern. Molly's very deep. Oh, yeah. And she just really loves to get in there and, you know, talk. She's a lot different from me, which is why I, I like her. So. And, and she's and she's so hilarious. And then we a couple months ago, we saw, uh, like, a one-night-off show. A workshop, a, yeah. Was that a workshop of this of the show? It was doing? a workshop. I tried to put up a full show, but it was really a workshop. <laughs> but still hilarious. I, it went good. I was so happy. Um, and that informed me a lot of what worked and what didn't work for the next, for the show. So you guys were guinea pigs and you were so nice to come. <laughs> oh, it was, it was hilarious. And you, you know, Molly so well that there are mo- were moments in the show where I could tell it kind of went off script a little yeah. bit. Like there was this one point in time where for some reason, I think it was a joke or something, everybody clapped. And instead of just, you know, letting that moment pass and moving on to your next beat, you kind of stepped to the side and gave this really funny <laughs> little bow. Hilarious. Oh, thanks. Do you feel natural in this I, I do. I started doing improv at UCB like 18 years ago when it was like the original UCB. It was a strip club. Um and I took it at other places, and I was so terrified of improv, and I would get so nervous, and stand-up, I was so nervous with stand-up, and um, now I've been playing Molly for so long that my favorite moments are when something goes wrong, like somebody gets a cue wrong, uh, the tech gets a cue wrong, or somebody's, it's just like, those are my favorite moments, I love it when that happens, because there was a comfort level, I've been playing her for probably eight years now, so I know her pretty well, and that mindset that she's in, so. Wow, and she has a, uh, a complete look. How did you create Molly's look? Uh, so I worked. That was actually the um, the genius of several people, several directors working with me, and um, my friend Anthony Catanzaro. He uh, he gave me this wig, which is part of the mullet. It's this. It's a cancer survivor wig that one of their friends had she beat cancer and she gave good. it to anthony yeah it's got some good mojo in okay, it okay good i was <laughs> i was gonna say great wig and then you said cancer yeah. survivor wig and i'm like okay i'm glad i held off on yeah that. no it's a it's a it's got great energy and it's actually a very beautiful expensive wig with real hair and stuff so um like anthony Anyway, he ended up with it because he does costumes. She thought he might be able to use it. So Anthony gave me that. It kind of just made the character a different level. And then, like, the safety vest came in, and and this was, like, his suggestions and different director's suggestions that I've worked with. So it's kind of a collaborative thing. Wow. But Anthony's the greatest person I know. I have to plug him because I never never pay him. Well, well, Anthony, we you deserve a plug for sure. <laughs> Poor Anthony and Irwin. Um, they're well, my friends. They help me a lot. Anyway. Well, now, you say that working in improv helped develop Molly. Yes. Was there any sort of inciting incident in your personal life that you ins- that inspired you to develop her yeah, and well, create her? The, the character actually came out of a 2005 sketch with Alan Warnock. Um, Love Alan. You know Alan. He's like, I write with him sometimes. He's like one of my best friends and he's brilliant. And he wrote this sketch for this sketch comedy group we were part of called Freedom. And this was like in 2005 and six. And we played the comedy clubs and stuff. But he wrote this this funny sketch about him playing this guy coming home to meet his family, and he brings home this really um, butch woman as his girlfriend. Oh my god! And Alan is 
was very quiet in the scene and very um, so anyway then I wanted to play her more so um, in 2010 11 I started to create her more and I had a lot of uh, turmoil in my life around that time mm -hmm. uh, just personal life and job and all this other stuff so I actually use that to fuel the script I wrote which went to the first which went to the fringe in 2011 I think and it was called the effing world according to Molly and um, anyway so I put everything all my personal experience into that and then I just changed it to Molly's perspective but it was so cathartic and the first draft was so terrible <laughs> so, and the fifth draft was really terrible too I always say when you're starting a project you can't be afraid to write crap you can't you, sometimes it's a cliche and you're just putting it there as a place I know it was so right? bad and then you go back and you're like okay, how do I make this original I know and that's hard I mean yeah it, it, that's it, the work part for me yeah it, it, it is yeah I mean a lot of work it, but the writing feels effortless like I don't see the writing oh cool and when you're doing the character um, and, and same with Alan. Is Alan going to be in the show? Alan, I, I roped him into doing this. You did? I have a 60-minute slot, and my show's about between 45 and 50 minutes. So um, I love being backstage with Alan, and I love hearing his voice and seeing him perform. So Alan is actually going to come and do a 10-minute character that he created, the guy from TaskRabbit. His name's Jerry. He's a total mess. Um, and I think he's going to teach the audience to meditate or something like that. But yeah, you get a two for one deal with us. And um, yeah. Which is, he's, it's interesting because when I've met him and talked to him, he's <laughs> really quiet yes. and like so like docile. And then you get him on stage and he's one of those people who like, Comes stage. alive, yeah. He's just like meant to be. Wow. On stage, he's phenomenal. And I saw him uh, as—is it Shelly the waitress? Uh, that was um, Angie. Angie the Shel waitress. Yeah, that's it was. It was enchilada Shelly's. Was the, yes, name of the restaurant? Yes. How did you come up with a name like Enchilada Shelly? I've always wanted to ask that. Oh, that's funny. Oh, wait. Yeah, so Enchilada Shelly, um, Alan and I did a play called Carl and Shelly, Best Friends Forever. We did it at the Fringe. It went on to a three-week run. So that was like a callback to that, Enchilada Shelly's. Um, we put a few little tiny callbacks that only like four people in the world would get. <laughs> you know? Like 14 people came to see the show, but... <laughs> It, well, it's like so specific. Yeah, it was a nice little. It was kind of random. Yeah, I don't know any Shelleys that have an enchilada joint. <laughs> right. Maybe there are. <laughs> like, I don't know. Well, my husband David and I always say the phrase, you know, you know, Angie, you're a real piece of shit waitress, <laughs> which was probably the funniest line in the whole damn thing, and and uh, in in a. An hour of hilarious lines. Oh my, we say it all the time, but it's just, it's so good. I, I can't express enough to the listeners how much fun they will have seeing Molly's world. Yeah, I, any, any iteration of Molly is yeah, hilarious. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just hope, I want to make a show where people laugh and they have a good time and they check out and it's short and come see this, you know, funny little play and... Yeah, and if if I'm not mistaken, um, each one of the shows that I saw ended with uh, a little bit of a there's there's a little fraction of a serious message there, and some hope. Yes, talk about that. Um, so Molly to me is like an underdog, you know, and she's kind of like an every woman or every man in some way, as far as she um, is just trying to get through the day as hard you know, the best she can, and uh, but she's terribly misguided and screws up a lot. Um, but yeah, there. at the end of the day, Molly's happy with who she is and is just plugging away. So there's always a hopefulness of, and she's having a good time. Um, there are some little social commentary that I try to get in there. Um, the script I wrote ended up really preachy. And then I met with my director, Mark Finley, and he had some ideas. And so we just cut out the preachy parts, and now it's like one line. So, um, but there are some things like, you know, kids getting bullied and her family and her grandmother's view on homosexuality in the 70s. So there's like a little, little moments of Molly gets real for a few um, 
Well, a few seconds. Let's yeah. not say minutes. <laughs> I, would, I would say less less than a minute. Yeah. And it's powerful, and it never takes away from the humor. Yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's always uh, dosed with... And shaded with lots of humor, and and it's nice because it because it feels like a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, good. Yeah, and and by the way, a little plug for Mark Finley. He, I've interviewed him on this show, so go back and listen to Mark's interview. He's a good guy. He is. He's a great guy, and uh, gave a terrific interview. And little plug for Sean. Go listen to all of his interviews because they're so he's so good, and he yeah he lets people talk. And it's great. Well, I I try to. Isn't she a great publicist? Did you hear that? <laughs> it's her show, and she's plugging my and show. And like on his her Facebook show. page and Twitter page. Your program is your ticket. She's she's helping me to build my empire, as yeah, she says. Exactly. <laughs> okay, now back to you. How are rehearsals going for the show? They're good. <laughs> are they? Yeah. Well, last time was kind of a mess because somebody doesn't know the lines she wrote, which would be me. But you know, other than that, it's all good. <laughs> Well, again, you think well on your feet, right? Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Do you forget your lines when you're on stage um, a lot or? Um, Well, that's the thing with Molly. It's hard to memorize exactly because then it doesn't sound exactly more real. So I don't know if that makes sense. Like if I'm doing a play, I'll memorize the text and so forth. Sure, yeah. But because I like to keep it loose with Molly, it's sort of, yeah. I I try to learn the lines, but then I also have um, like in a story, like the five things I need to hit to make it make sense. So um, yeah, a lot of times I get lost. I have a cheat sheet. Um, it's actually my poetry folder, which is a prop. And then I just wrote write the running order in there. I guess I shouldn't say that. So anyway, if I get completely lost, I'll just go to a poem and see where I'm at. No one will care. It's so hilarious. Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> That's a, so, so you said that you have five things that you, five points you like to accomplish. Well, if there's like a story that I'm doing. You break it down into five points and just um, point to point to point. There's at, the, at some points it gets to where, yeah, I have to like intro it, mention so-and-so, get this joke in, and then maybe, you know, one or two specific things. So I don't know if that makes sense. So uh, it's the first time I've ever heard of somebody having like a to-do list on stage. Yeah, it's like um, sometimes that's how I do it, so it seems more natural and talky. Because Molly, I like her. People have thought that Molly's a real character, um, which is the biggest compliment to me because she's so in your face and just kind of crazy. Well, like I said, I thought that was who was going to answer the phone when I called you. <laughs> I am Molly. I like to be your publicist. <laughs> I know the mafia. <laughs> you get me a lady friend, I'll do your stuff for free. <laughs> I don't know. That would be so weird. <laughs> it would be hilarious. You should just do that and then say, just kidding. It's just me. kidding. It's me. I have a, hu- I a sense of humor. <laughs> um, tell us about your experience with uh, Frigid Fest. Um, so I love the frigid and eras and horse trade, and I started. Um, I've actually never done the festival as a performer, but I've done. Uh, I've been a publicist and producer on other shows. Um, saying um a lot, so I'm glad to be doing a show. That it's just yeah, it's more fun. So they do a lot of really good theater. So it's a uh, it's a nice mix of people. Terrific. By the way, there are people that say um a lot more than oh, you. Oh gosh. <laughs> Myself included. <laughs> David will listen to the podcast. He'll be like, you first of all, you need to talk a lot slower. Second of all, you need to say, say um a lot less. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's my podcast, so Yes. <laughs> His husband's amazing. Yeah, they're he... they're both really attractive, cute men. Oh, stop. Oh my god. Stop, I love stop, you guys. Stop. And talented. Did you plug your show? Stop, stop, <laughs> stop. I know, right? And Sean has a musical in Chicago now. He's like a big shot. Oh, no, no. Enough of that. <laughs> we the People, the anti-Trump mu- musical. Yes, I do have a musical. And I haven't, I haven't, well, I've talked You're about it. You're going back. A little bit. I yeah. am going back. I'm going back on Soon. Uh, day after tomorrow to film the show because that's closing weekend. Oh, exciting. And then the following weekend to to record the demo. Oh, nice. Of the show. Cool. Yeah. I yeah. Wanna, I'm going to buy it. 
Well, you can't buy it at this point. I'm gonna buy it when I can. <laughs> when it goes off, when it goes Bravo, I'm gonna buy it. <laughs> Say that like Molly, please. When it goes off Broadway, I'm gonna buy the CD. <laughs> I'm gonna get the record off of iTunes, <laughs> and then I'm gonna go sleep with the three ladies in the cast. <laughs> Okay. There's three, right? There are three. Yeah. They're all very, very pretty, and one is actually married. Oh, doesn't matter to Molly. <laughs> She's only interested in like 15 minutes. No, uh, nothing long term. <laughs> so. This is true. All right. Oh, never mind. I don't want to ask you that question because it's a spoiler in your show. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you can yeah. do whatever you want. You can always cut it. Oh, no, 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 I want to ask. All right. But there was a really, really funny part in your show, and it's audience interactive. So. I may have cut that. <gasps> Wait, was it the Canada or the girlfriend bit? No, it's what? Or was it nothing? It's when you pull a lady up from the audience. Yeah. And, like, you pull three ladies up and then judge which one you're going to sleep with. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, maybe I'll put it in now. <laughs> Now Alan can't do the show because right. the show's going to be long. <laughs> Poor Alan. I know. You only have six, 60 minutes. No, I know. No, no, I'm doing something. Right. I'm doing something. Leave, leave, leave Alan in. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's too much of a positive to the show. I was going to kick him out, but you saved him. <laughs> I love Alan. You're welcome, Alan. <laughs> You're welcome, Alan. <laughs> okay. Well, before we wrap up, yeah. uh, give our audience the social inter- information for Molly's World, where they can go to buy tickets and um, information and all that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's like frigid.org or something. Do you have a Facebook page for Molly? Yeah, Molly Equality Dykeman on Facebook and Twitter. I think it's just Molly Dykeman on Twitter and um, www.mollydykeman.com, but I'm currently building it because... <laughs> I had the website Molly Equality Dykeman, and then I forgot to pay the bill, and then somebody else bought the domain name, so I have to start from scratch. Because <laughs> <laughs> they went like $5,000 for Molly Equality Dykeman. Oh, my God. Is that true? Yeah, so now it's just Molly Dykeman. Like, seriously, who doesn't buy the domain? It's like $12 a year. So that's because I'm a busy publicist. Right? Yeah. She's too busy Doing promoting my, uh, my show yes. on her show. Yes. To what? be able to, what? What are you talking about? I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, you have been a delight. You have completely delivered on every count. And like made me laugh, and I'm almost in tears laughing hysterically. So, break legs. Thank you. I'll definitely come and see it for sure. Okay. You know, I'm like one of Molly's like top, okay, 200 fans. Yeah. Because she has so many. She has so many. Right? I was going to say number one, and that's, first of all, I'm not female, so no, it doesn't. But she does appreciate the men coming out. (laughs) She likes her gay boys. She does like her gay boys. So do I. We're all good. Indeed. So. Well, thank you for being thank with you. us, Andrea Alton, from Molly's World. You were amazing. You. You're amazing, Sean. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Folks, please welcome to the show Mike Lemmy from 50th and 4th. Hi, Mike, and welcome to your program as your ticket. Hi, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Tell our audiences about 50th and 4th, please. 50th and 4th is a new play going up at the Frigid Festival. We open on Valentine's Day. The show is about uh, a married couple in Brooklyn, Rick and Sue, and they rent out their spare bedroom on Craigslist. It is inspired by my first roommates in New York City, which were a married couple I found on Craigslist. I lived with them for a year and a half, and uh, I lived there that long because I thought they loved me more than my parents. And it's probably because I paid them 500 bucks a month. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a married couple on uh, married couple rented out their spare bedroom on Craigslist. 
Wow. So it's is it semi autobiographical or is it really close? It's um it's semi auto auto uh, whoa hey it's, it's almost autobiographical. Uh, I can't pronounce that word apparently. That's okay. Um, but it's it's mostly each character represents a different version of me, kind of. So the married couple I lived with from Craigslist was the inspiration for the show, but the characters are not based on them. The characters are kind of based on me and like different versions of people talking in my mind. Interesting. <laughs> well, and how long did it did, has it taken you to write the show? Uh, the show itself took me about a year to write. Um, bringing on a director, Tara Coletti, and the cast, uh, we did a couple read-throughs, so the script got better. Through, well, with every read-through, they gave me notes, and we made the script better. But the premise has been going on in my head for a while, man. So I, I started writing about a year ago, but the premise has been there for at least five or six years since I moved to New York. I call that think writing. Yes. I do the same. I mean, I think that oftentimes as writers, like, we'll sit down and we'll write, but we have to sort of, like, let it percolate yeah, in our heads time, and, and, like, figure it out. And, and it's, it's often not so much just figuring out what you're going to write, but what is the next step mm-hmm. in the process for writing the script? What, what, what am I doing now? What am I adding now? Yeah, it just keeps changing. That's the I'm a, I'm a stand-up comedian, so like the the cool thing about writing a play is working with a, a group of people. You know, working with the actors and the director because they give me notes on how to make the script better. As opposed to with stand-up, I just go on stage and the audience tells me if it's funny or not. But with the the playwriting, like I have a director constantly tell me why is this person saying that? That doesn't relate to their character. You got to change it. So it's been an adjustment to go from stand-up by myself to working as a team. Uh, with the writing process is a whole different experience. Is this your first play that you've written? Yes, oh, first okay. play. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and and uh, what is the one thing that you learned about writing a play that you never expected? Uh, one thing I learned about writing a play that I never expected is the fact that the playwright kind of needs to step away from the experience. Sure. Um, uh, so the the cast is actually rehearsing right now as we do this, and I'm not there. So I haven't even gone to rehearsal yet uh, because the, I was kind of dri- uh, driving the director a little crazy by just constantly nitpicking different situations we had in the read-throughs. So then I talked to a couple uh, friends in the theater industry, and they, they said, like, as the writer, you have to step away. You do. So you create this this show, and then the show is good if you're not that involved with it, which is it's fascinating to me. Like you create this thing, you bring on a cast and a crew, and then like it's almost better that you're you kind of like stop being involved at that point. Yeah, I think there's a lot of of trust that has to yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it, it's my experience as a writer, and I've had two shows go up that um, you. You sit there in in the audience. I mean, there's no audience. It's it's you and maybe three other people who are working on the show, and uh, you just have to just be quiet. And that, that's the hardest thing for me to right? do. Yeah, I can't. I, I like it's uh, it's better if I'm not at rehearsal because if I was there, I just like I I try to rewrite like every line or make so many different changes. So that's the biggest difference so far. Is like when I wrote the show, I didn't realize that like I want to be that involved with it. Like once I got done writing it, yeah, it's 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 a lot of discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 I trust me, I can totally relate. <laughs> and then they tell you, you know, it's it's probably best to run everything through your director. Yes. Just so that the cast is dealing with one voice. That's yep. That's the first thing the director told me. She's like, right. if I'm going to direct this, you have to like let all the actors. If they have any questions, it goes through me first. Oh yeah. So that's a, yeah. I'm just sitting back and trying to be a team player now. Wow. So are you nervous about your first play going up and how and audience reaction? I'm not that nervous. I feel like maybe I should be more nervous, but I haven't got, I haven't received any notes from the director or the cast, and I think they're having fun. And uh, as a comedian, I know what it's like to bomb on stage, and I don't feel like that's going to happen. I feel like I trust the actors, I trust the director. I love the script that we wrote together, and I I think it's just going to be fun. And uh, I'm a lot less nervous about this than I am for like a a show I'm doing later tonight. You know, I'm more nervous for just me going on stage with new material as opposed to this play that this group of people. People have been working on for months, so I, I just I believe in them and I have confidence in them. So I'm not I'm not that nervous about it. Well, it, it seems like um, stand-up comedy is. Although I'm sure there's camaraderie amongst the other comedians that you're, and, and I'm, I, there, I, I would imagine there there's like a, a group family. 
sort of feel to it after you've been in, in it for a little while. But still, I would think that it would be writing-wise and performing-wise kind of, not lonely, but isolated. And so it's probably really nice that you've got this group of people who are surrounding you for support. It's so interesting because the, 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 their first rehearsal, so I wrote the play, we got the cast together, I got the director, and then the first night they rehearsed, I wasn't there and I had no plans. And it was like the loneliest feeling I've ever felt because I, I created the show, brought on this group of people, and then like they were just rehearsing on their own. It was like, it was like missing a family dinner, you know? Sure. Like, so I definitely feel, I feel like I built this support system some around the play, but also me not interjecting too much to like uh, get in the way of their process has like led me back to feeling like uh, working as an individual again. Right. You know, you, you have this, you have a support system, but I just don't want to bother them. Kind <laughs> of. <laughs> it's like it's like having a family, and I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to ask them for help. All the, like you know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I hear you. Now, would you describe fiftieth and fourth as uh, primarily uh, a comedy? Is it kind of a romp? Is it a dark comedy. Uh, are there dramatic overtones to it? It's uh, it's mostly a comedy with dramatic overtones. Um, basically, what you see is um, Rick and Sue are renting out their uh, spare bedroom for potentially the last time, and they're renting it out to Taylor, which is played who was played by Kirsten Dwyer, amazing actress. And uh, you pick up when they first meet each other. So the the show opens when uh, Taylor, Rick, and Sue all meet each other. It's their first conversation they have together. And you just you just watch them get to know one another. So did I catch that it's it's the couple and it's it's a a, a lady. Yes. So that's, um, the, that's the roommate. So yes. Was it that's interesting because you say it's based on your experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, was it was it uh, a challenge for you to write from a female perspective? It was incredibly challenging. At first, the the role of Taylor was going to be uh, a man. It was uh, There's another character, a male character, uh, based off me. But then um, uh, Kirsten came in to do a reading for another character, and she was so good that I kind of just made her the center of this uh the, the, the show, you know, she's right. she's renting the room from uh, Rick and Sue, Emil and Gloria, the character uh, actors, and um, Kirsten just like did such a good job at her first reading that I, I just wanted the show to kind of be about her. So with the help of Kirsten and Tara, the the director, we we kind of like created this female. Uh, driven story, you know, like it's not a. I I don't know how to write for female characters, but apparently, you know, with, with a little help, I can do it. <laughs> well, I think it all all comes down to uh, doing your best to understand point of view mm-hmm. and and being open, uh, particularly to to women and what they're saying to you, um, and and realizing that everybody's human. Mm-hmm. And we all have human needs, and although there might be differences, uh, the motivations are, are still the same. The uh, the notes from the cast and Tara, the director, uh, on the development of these characters has actually helped me a lot in my personal life. You know, just 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 hearing these women talk about their lives has helped me deal with uh, you know some trouble I had dating. You know, just just being able to listen and understand uh, what women are talking about. You know, like I, I was so closed off to that before I started writing the show that like having a, a group of women help me out has really uh, changed my personal life right. and, and, and for, the, for the better. Well, I feel that, like I'm rambling on. I don't know. No, no, you're, you're doing great. That's, that's, that's a great bonus. It really is. It's, it's helped me out tremendously, yes. Well, I think that, you know, I'm sure you've got other plays in your mind and, um, and there are characters that are not like you or aren't you. Yeah. And it probably was very helpful to go through that experience Experience creating um, this this great female character, and in in so much as your formula for writing characters that are different from you in the future. Absolutely, yeah. Like this, I feel like a lot of my stand up is personal stories that I take that I exaggerate the punchline to make it funnier. You know, it's all I take a, I take something that really happened to me and then I just add a punchline to it. And this play is uh, a lot of the things in the play actually happened to me, and it might be. A, a stepping stone to creating like a whole original concept next. You know, take a story that didn't actually happen to me. I, I have the tools to like write these characters now. So it is a, it's a great learning experience to creating something new. Are there any new projects that you'd like to talk about 
right now that you're working on? You don't have to if you don't want to. I uh, I want to write a movie based off my father, uh, a really? single dad um, cool. character. That's kind of I, I I want it to be I want it to be Christian Bale playing my father in a in a single dad uh, dramedy. Uh, it's kind of like a, like a Lady Bird, but from a single dad's perspective. Wow, Lady Bird's a great film. That's, hey, I loved it. I loved it so much. Oh, I yeah, everything yes. about it. Yeah. Although I love Alice and Jenny a lot, I'm really pulling for Laurie Metcalf to win the Oscar. She's amazing. I know she's so good, and you know, Saoirse Ronan, and it just yeah, Greta Gerwig. Talk about like a mega talent. It's it, incredible. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. It's, it's such a, such an amazing film. Now, what what brought on the idea to write a movie about your dad? Is it did did you have a Relationship issues, or I mean, it, oh, the whole family is it's one big relationship issue. Oh, <laughs> but it's well. like I spend uh, a lot of time talking about my mother on stage and, and in my writing, and I, I feel like my dad hasn't got the uh, the attention he deserves. Like my dad is pretty much a, a superhero to me, and uh, uh, he took on a lot of responsibility when he didn't have to. And um, uh, basically, I lived with my mom for uh, uh, first nine years of my life, then I, li- I moved with my father for nine years, my my brother and I, uh, until. I went away to college and my, my dad just became this kind of like superhero parent who took on a lot of responsibility and you don't see a lot of single dads getting uh, a lot of appreciation in uh, TV movies theater whatever I don't know maybe they do I just haven't been paying attention I don't know that's that's a, a really nice tribute and you say this is uh, something that you want to work into a screenplay right correct yeah okay. yeah that's the, that's the plan uh, but who knows maybe it'll, like the 50th and 4th was originally a screenplay and now, right. it's, it's, now it's going up at the Frigid Festival so who knows what happens to it I think it, that happens a lot. I have a, a lot of writer friends who start something off one way, and then it goes into another media. I was also, I'm also just tired of things collecting dust on my laptop. You know, yeah. I, have, I have all these scripts. I want to actually put something up. So, like, luckily, Horse Trade and the Frigid Festival is like a great opportunity to actually showcase your work. So, it's, um, I mean, I had to jump at the opportunity to to try it out. Yeah, my uh, my co-writer Leo Schwartz, he calls. Uh, well, he's he's usually writing songs, although he's written book for some musicals. He he's I, I, I was like, well, you, you wrote three songs for this, and now they're not going to be used here. And he's like, oh, I have so many trunk songs. <laughs> he calls them trunk songs, yeah, 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 yeah. and I so I so now I've I've adopted that as you know I have lots of trunk scripts and <laughs> and, and projects. And plus, you never know. I mean, it, something that you wrote three years ago might yeah. you know become very very prevalent mm-hmm. um, that's the thing of like coming from stand-up is like you might be working on a joke that you can't figure out and then you come back to it like two or three years later and you have a whole new perspective on the premise so it's easier to make it funnier you know than that you, you weren't ready for the joke at the time and now uh, you have more experience that helps you write it wow that's <laughs> that's great and, and you know what it's it's so important I think in, even if you're writing a drama to make it funny yeah you gotta yeah there's gotta be something there's gotta be some kind of payoff yeah I know? mean well there, there's gotta be uh, levity yeah mm-hmm. and so your experience doing stand up and, and knowing how to write jokes and what works and, and dealing with that you know multiple times a week I would assume um, is will be so helpful for you I think awesome in your career because you'll be able to do I mean it's it's really really difficult to write humor it is you know oh I know yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of bombing a lot of you gotta you know, but that's the thing is like you get on stage every night and the audience tells you what works and what doesn't work and then you go back to the, the notebook and try to figure it out somehow right it's like what's what's the uh, the phrase uh, dying is easy comedy is hard I agree yeah man yeah <laughs> I, I, I don't necessarily agree but I'm like yeah it's this you, you learn more from the bad shows than you do the good shows oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean yeah it's very I, to, to me I, I think it's easy to be for me as a writer it's easy to be like really melodramatic okay. when I'm writing but it's like oh we, we want it to be funnier and I'm like oh my gosh wow it's, it's it really is tough so that's a good advantage that you have and that you put in all that work I just hope the punchlines work that's the thing uh, another thing about stand up and playwriting is like stand up I can tell I can go on stage tonight and see if a thought of my mind's funny or not right. but with the play it's like the script's been there for like months and now like I'm finally gonna get to see like which punchlines hit and which ones don't and sure it's, uh, you never 
never see. I don't know. Yeah, you. It's it's like you. Well, you have an instantaneous audience with with stand up. I think, but you don't know until it's up in yeah, front of an know. audience. Yeah, Because yeah. I, I I I've written uh, jokes where I was like, oh, this is hilarious, you know, <laughs> and then I'll get get it in front of an audience and it's like cricket. Yeah, it's it's so that might be the only thing I'm nervous about. Is like there's a couple punchlines in there. That I'm like, I hope the punchline works. You know, like this this is the whole production is like it's such a big production for me. Uh, but I'm really concerned about a couple punchlines. Like I want those jokes to hit. <laughs> I'm I'm sure they will. I mean, you have you have great experience with it. And you know what? If they don't, yeah. then this is the beginning of this yeah, uh, yeah. play. And so you will have other opportunities. You can take what you've learned and what the feedback that you get, and just you know continue to reshape it and rewrite it. Um, and it's. It, it will be such a wonderful experience for you, nice. um, and and I'm, I'm I'm happy for you. I, trust me, I've been there. <laughs> <It's great. laughs> you'll you'll get nervous probably about ten minutes before the lights go down and the audience is all. Oh yeah, here. that's the thing about like uh, um, I'm worried that if like someone forgets a line or something, I'm, I'm gonna want to like jump on stage and start doing stand up, but I can't. I mean, I can't go up there. No, nope. wild. Yeah, yeah. No, you cannot. All you can do is like <laughs> make, a, make a mental note and go. Oh my God! Oh my God please remember your line. Please. Remember Remember your line. <laughs> well, I'm sure you have terrific actors who can cover. For oh, that'd be each great. Very good. Yeah, so that's great. So, what do you want audiences to leave feeling after they see 50th and Fourth? Um, when an audience leaves 50th and Fourth, I want them. I want them to get a sense of uh, a couple things, a sense of what New York City can bring you. I, I, uh, I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts with a dysfunctional family, and I never knew how to talk about any pain that we were going through as a family. Because in small town America, you don't really express yourself. Like when you go to school, or you go hang out with your friends, you don't talk about any of the pain that you're experiencing at home. Uh, but when you move to a big city like New York, you, you meet these people that kind of become your second family, and you're able to like bond with them over over shared pain that you haven't talked about with anyone so i want a lot of people have this uh perception of new yorkers as being cold and like and not wanting to talk to you but really a lot of people in new york just love talking about things they're going through and i never realized that there's other people going through certain situations until i moved to new york and experienced this new family i found and found comfort like talking about um, what I was going through. So, so I think, yeah, what I want people to go away thing is like, there's some amazing New Yorkers, uh, uh, and when you move to an, uh, a new city, you can find a family that's not a biological family. It's just, maybe it's just people you met on Craigslist, you know, like uh, a married couple you found on the internet. Sure. Cool. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, give our audience your social media information for the show so they know where to go and where to go buy tickets. Yes. And information on, on, on the play, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, tickets are available through my website. MikeLemme.com M-I-K-E-L-E-M-M-E.com uh, at MikeLemme on Instagram and then I have the, uh, the handles for 50th and 4th yeah, you can find them on my website and my uh, Instagram account and the whole, everyone in the cast is getting paid thanks to like uh, a Kickstarter campaign we did yes. we raised almost $4,000 on Kickstarter everyone's getting paid um, and I can't thank the people that contributed to the Kickstarter enough that was uh, amazing that's excellent. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's that's great. Well, uh, this has been a really cool experience talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank oh, you. I, I I think you're my first stand-up comedian that's ever been on the show. Uh, so this is it was really cool talking nice. about yeah, that. Yeah. So appreciate it. Uh, break legs <laughs> and uh, have a great time. Enjoy it. Be present. I'll be there. Be, there, be there. You know, <laughs> and just just really enjoy the moment while you're there. <laughs> it's hard when everything else is swimming around, uh, but this is. Uh, uh, I think going to be a really charmed time for you, and and um, I, I wish you the best. And I'm I'm going to do my absolute very best to come see the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Uh, thank you for being with us, Mike Lemmy from Fiftieth and Fourth. Folks, please welcome to the show Rich Comeda from an internment camp magic show. Hi, Rich, and welcome to your program as your ticket. Hello, great to be here. Uh, it's it's great to have you here. Um, I am uh, like super intrigued by the title of your show, and I, I, I like I kind of have an image in my mind from just from the title, but let's see if it sort of matches your description of the actual show. So tell the audience what your show, an internment camp magic show, is about. 
So let me just give you the quick synopsis that I have in my postcard, which is unsure of his future, a Japanese magician entertains his fellow prisoners and us, the audience, with intriguing stories and magic from that era based on the actual prisoner. So uh, the inspiration of the show was I was uh, I'm involved a lot with the Japanese American community here in New York. And a friend of mine put together a presentation about Michi Kobe, who was a Japanese-American activist who helped during the redress movement, which allowed uh, Japanese-Americans to get an apology from the U.S. government, also $20,000 from the U.S. government. Uh, during the presentation, there was a map of the barracks in the camps, and it showed a rec hall, so that intrigued me. Uh, while that presentation was going on, there was another gentleman, his name is Stanley Kanzaki. He was actually in the camp, and I turned to Stanley. Hey, Stanley, did you, by the way, know anyone in the camp who was a magician? And he said he did, and this gentleman's name was Robert Katase. So that sparked an idea, like, well, if there was a magician, maybe he'd try to do something for his prisoners. And then that's where I came up with the premise for the show. Tell me about the premise. Okay. So the premise is that, so here's a guy trying to entertain the people in the camp with him, Meanwhile, he's trying to be an optimist and trying to keep on a, you know, a strong face, realizing that you know, what happened to the Japanese Americans during World War II was totally unjust and was just a travesty of justice. Indeed, yes. And, and is, there, is there actual magic in the show? Yes. Okay. So what I did was a... For me, an interesting constraint to work with is I limited myself to magic from that era. So one of the great texts that magicians referred to is a book called Greater Magic, and that was published in 1938-39. So that was a great reference, and trying to keep myself to anything during that period, I not doing anything from modern age, or what we consider like modern card tricks, or anything new since then. So anything I do magic trick-wise would be from that time period. Wow. I bet that was a lot of research. It was a lot of research, but I own a magic book collection, about six or 700 magic books, so it was just kind of a way to exploit my own library. So, so you're a magician as well. Yes. And so was it kind of like a no-brainer? Like when, when you said to yourself, okay, I'm setting that rule for this particular story, did you immediately have you know, 20, 30 magic tricks that you knew classified under that time period. I did have a handful, and for this iteration that I'm doing for Frigid Festival, I added some more magic, so then I had to go back. But my original show was part of Solocom at the Pit. Uh, once I knew of this magician, uh, the Solocom Festival gave me a nice deadline to work against, so uh, just, it was nice to just kind of just get the idea out there and just try it out. I had like maybe eight people in the audience, but felt like I did something, and then I ran it again in May of last year. And that time I actually had some friends from the Japanese American community, had one friend who's super critical of anything, saying, I think you have something here. So when he kind of gave me praise, I was like, oh, maybe this is worth pursuing. Wow. That's nice to hear, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's if it's a solo show, because you said you were at Solcom. And um, so it's, it's all you and your brain for a long time, right? So finally putting it up on its feet and getting and getting really positive feedback, uh, that probably helped quite a bit. Um, did you get any comments from the audience or the people that came to the show that, that caused you to, to change the show or reshape it in any way? So one of the great things uh, for this iteration is that I'm working with Peter Michael Marino, who's been directing me. And uh, first, I want to say that as a magician, I'm so used to doing everything by myself, writing my own scripts, working on my own magic tricks. That's really great to have an outside opinion and just not rely. And uh, he's got so much tons of experience, so I feel like every time I work with them, I'm learning, learning something new. Great. Um, did you, <clears throat> had you written any, uh, a play before or musical, or has it been strictly magic? So anything, any writing I've done before is just me writing the script for a magic trick for myself. So this is the first time of using a character, uh, trying to figure out what this guy wants to do. It's always just me presenting a trick, and uh, I think some of the lessons I've learned from work on the show would probably go back into my professional repertoire that I do as performing as myself. Well, sure. You, you, you very definitely, uh, as a ma magician, I'm sure that you have to... Um, 
you have to learn to to be stage strong, for for lack of a better uh, phrase. You have to be comfortable on stage. That that takes being on stage for a little while, uh, whether it's a magician or an actor, singer, whatever. Um, and 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 now you're now you're acting, so you're building upon on on the strength of that. So you're playing a character that's not you anymore. What's that like? I guess a double-edged sword. Uh, one of the so one of the reasons how I got into the pit was well, actually started uh, in 2016. I wanted to get become a better performer, so I started taking improv classes at the pit. And then kind of heard about the festival. Said maybe I'd like to try this idea out for the festival. Uh, so from doing improv, I think learned some more acting skills, which I never had. So it's kind of something nice to have in my toolbox now. And as far as playing a character now, it's in some ways uh, nice because I don't have to be myself and in some ways it's you have to be someone else so it's kind of uh, they're both sides of the coin I think or uh, trying to explore that is kind of what's interesting about working on this show wow um, is <clears throat> what kind of research did you do on this gentleman because uh, it, it, it feels like it feels like there wouldn't there would be history, but not really detailed history. Did you have to look really, really hard at this man's life to really suss out who who he was and who, who he is and his legend? I really haven't had, didn't dig into it. I just kind of took the idea and know that someone like this existed and then maybe took some artistic license as to, you know, what could have happened. And that's kind of what the show explores. I think... Um, it's, in the way the show is timely because it deals with uh, the camps as immigration and we have an administration or government actually wants to put people of Muslim uh, background into uh, incarcerate them as well which is unjust and that's pretty much what happened with the Japanese Americans without a trial they all got sent to the camp which was just a huge injustice I'd say wow um, is how how is this character different from you? I guess he's more happier. He's got more optimist. I can be more of a pessimist myself. So I think trying to keep that, I figure uh, what's winning for him is entertaining everyone around him and just trying to keep like a positive attitude despite the fact that he is in this miserable camp right now. Right. Uh, are there moments in, in the show where you show him becoming miserable and becoming uh, struggling with what's going on? Not so much struggling, but I do, I think there are some points about, he talks about what happened to his dad's business and, you know, how in, I kind of have a couple moments where I, I will let that affect him or maybe just, just talking about the injustice of being there. Uh, yeah. How uh, Japanese Americans were sent to the camp, but not Italian Americans or German Americans, because we were also at war with those countries as well. But because Japanese Americans looked different, they were easy to isolate and put into the camps and say Italians or Germans. Wow. What kind of emotions did this bring up while you were while you were developing the show within you? Uh, a little anger, I guess, because just I think. You know what did happen was real. Like I said, it was it wasn't fair. You know, like I said, people got put in there without a trial. And like I said, I just want to. There's that bitter story of what actually happened to the Japanese Americans, but I kind of want to sugarcoat it with not like in a saccharine kind of sense. But I want to entertain people, but at the same time teach this lesson. This is actually what happened before, and let's not repeat the history that happened back seventy years ago. Wow. Wow. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I, or the theories that I kind of have when I'm watching something or, or when I'm writing something is that um, tragedy without hope, this is just when I'm, this is just how I feel about art. Tragedy without hope leaves me a little flat. It really does. Um, it's, it's, it's like watching somebody have their head slammed against the wall without watching them being taken away and cared for by an ambulance. It's, it's, it's very difficult to watch. Are, are you, have you put hope in your story? There is some hope, I guess. There is, I mean, I think there is some growth. You know, so the way we rewrote the show is that uh, originally it was just one show that takes place on 
January 1st, 1943, but then Peter came up with a great idea, how about we do multiple shows? So we're visiting the show in 1943, then 44, and then 45, so, you know, there's some time for the character to grow. And also there's some time that's passed that we can also talk about some of the history of the Japanese-Americans in the camp, like the uh, the boys who were in the camp who volunteered for the U.S. Army despite the fact that uh, their families were still trapped behind barbed wire. Wow. Well, I, I think that good art will always entertain, educate, and edify or uplift people. And it feels like that's what you're what you're trying to do with this piece. I mean, I would think that the entertainment would come in the form of the magic. Uh, magic is always fun to watch, I think. I think it's fun. Um, educating people on something they should know a lot more about, that's for sure. Um, and then g- giving people uh, a nice message that they can leave with. And if, if you had to put that message into words... What do you? How do you want the audience to leave the theater? What What do you want them feeling? It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say: your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over a hundred social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today! At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. One thing feeling that this was a really unfortunate time in the U.S. history, but also we do live in a country that actually apologized for that. So there is that hope. When you think about, you know, I think it's the only time the U.S. government ever offered an apology. And uh, Ronald Reagan, I think it was H.R., I can't remember, there was a resolution that he passed, and that's when they gave a formal apology sent to everyone who was in the camp and uh, $20,000. Unfortunately, not everyone got the, uh, that, that happened in the 80s as opposed to the 40s when, uh, right after the war. So a lot of records got lost or uh, things, people passed on people passed on and and there, there wasn't sufficient tracking for that wow um is is this now inspiring you to want to write more uh just standard plays that don't have magic in them more stories about um your life and what you see maybe uh Right now, I just figure you write what you know. That's what don't they, they always say that. So, uh, being in the Japanese or Asian American community, I've known about you know this story has been something you know always uh, the Japanese American feels like you know just it's always kind of one step behind me. Unfortunately, I, my family came over to the United States after all this happened, but it's just being, I think, a responsibility of being Japanese American that you know you should know your history and exactly what happened. So. I'm not sure. I'll kind of want to see push, see where this goes, and uh, I still think of you know I still enjoy enjoy doing magic uh, first and foremost. And if I can kind of tell a nice story or educate people at the same time, that's kind of a win for me. That's great. That's a great attitude. Do you have any like um, fantasy projects? Like if I had all the money in the world, and it could be magic, it could be. It could be a play. It could be a movie. If you had all the money in the world and all the resources in the world, what would be your big fantasy project? I guess uh, I'd have to look at what's going on right now at the Daryl Roth Theater. There's a great gentleman, magician Derek Delgadio. He's doing a great show in and of itself. And maybe something like that. I don't want to copy his show, but something along those lines would be great. But, wow. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to copy him. I kind of want to set my, you know, be myself and add my, what I, my experience and what, you know, that's what I bring to the table. Wow. So I, I'm not familiar with this magician that you just mentioned. Uh, what, what are his shows like? His shows, it's uh, also a one-man show, but uh, it's hard to describe his show. It's just out there. Uh, you should go see it. Uh, Frank Oz is the director Oh, yeah, I know Frank Oz, yeah. And 
I think Mark Mothersbaugh uh, is he composed the music for it. And it's in that uh, Dar Roth downtown. It just it's, uh, it's I think it's one of those shows that I've talked to other magicians. It's one of those shows that we'll be talking about for a while, not just during his run here in New York. Wow. Well, I'm just wondering um, when your career takes off as. Uh, uh, a playwright writing standard plays and and scripts in that manner. Uh, where does your mind go to with that kind of thing? If um, if if you had to write something that didn't include magic, would that just number one would that be like the worst thing in the world for you? And number two, if it wouldn't, if it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, what would you what would you do? I think. Uh, other than being magic, I guess the other thing is being uh, myself and being Japanese-American. So I think I maybe if I was going to go that road, maybe more write more about the Japanese-American experience. But I think maybe there are probably people who are better writers than I am. So maybe mixing the magic and the Asian-American experience would probably be what I could do best. Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, and rehearsals are going okay. Is it is it you yourself and you for rehearsals right now at this point? No, I, like I said, I'm working with Peter Michael Marino, who is fantastic. And just every time I work with him as a magician, you're always doing everything by yourself. You're writing everything. Uh, you're practicing your your slights or your magic. And to kind of have like an outside viewpoint on everything is just like eye opening. I feel like every time I work with Peter, I'm learning something new. Wow. So he's bringing sort of a dramaturge experience where, and a director will do that. They'll they'll find all of the inconsistencies. They'll find all of the errors. They they I think are responsible for being the first audience. You know, other than your imagination, you know, being the audience uh, of your uh, of your first draft. Um, so that's great. It really is. I think that that brings a lot of depth and scope to your work. Um, so how, now. Tell me again how long you've been practicing magic. So I started, I've been doing magic for about, I've lost track, maybe 27 years. I think it'd be 20, 26, 27 years. I started around 91, I guess. So uh, right after I think I failed out of college for the first time, I needed, uh, I used to shoot pool all the time, so I needed another hobby to get into. I got into magic, which uh, allowed me to kind of have a hobby at the same time, not goof off and lose hours uh, from studying. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Because I was pursuing an engineering degree, which was pretty uh, difficult. Oh, yeah? Did, how did that pan out? Did you, did, you still, did you still get your engineering degree, or did you... I, I did uh, get my engineering degree. I started Carnegie Mellon. I actually went to Stephens High School here in New York. Went to Carnegie Mellon, failed out, and then finished my undergrad, uh, my mechanical engineering degree at Stephen Institute of Technology in Hoboken. Worked some, a uh, couple of engineering jobs, and then uh, kind of was in between jobs and maybe a little bit depressed at the same time. I was working, finished, did some work for my parents, and then got an opportunity to work at the magic shop that I'm still currently work at. That was about uh, 12, 13 years ago, and figured it, it's, you know, do what you love to do, and if it doesn't work out, you know, you won't have any regrets in life. Unfortunately, everything's worked out at this point. I, you seem like a very, very together uh, gentleman and and very dedicated and committed and um, I, I would think that anything that you would try would work out just great and um, it, I I'm looking forward to seeing more work from you that's kind of why I pushed you a little bit because I wanted to see uh, and I love magic uh, above and beyond magic or inclusive of magic what what you had going on in in the back of your mind for the future because I think we always have a little bit of it back there, but we don't necessarily... Some of us are a little bit more eager to divulge that information, so people like to play it a little closer to the vest. So I totally respect yeah. that. So, well, this has been a great interview. Uh, you're, you're, you're one smart dude. Oh, you really you. are. Sure. Uh, before we go, uh, can you please give our audience your social media information for your show so they know where to buy tickets? I guess... Uh 
you can just find me on Facebook, which is just under my name, Rich Kamada, or I have my Instagram account, uh, Rich Kamada, R-I-C-H-K-A-M-E-D-A, and my Twitter account is also the same handle as well. Groovy. Excellent. Well, thank you, sir. You've been a great guest, and I appreciate it, and I wish you uh, uh, many broken legs, you know, and uh, not legs on a on a stool that's housing a magic trick or something like that. Just your own legs. Well, actually, in the magic community, we always tell each other break a thread because that's kind of the method as to some of the tricks work. So we always tell each other instead of break a thread, uh, break a leg, we always say break a thread kind of as the uh, same thing. That's great. I love that. Okay, I'm going to, I definitely, that's, that's, okay, that's great. That's one of my favorite moments on my entire podcast, I oh, have to tell you, you that, that I figured that out, and or not, you didn't figure it out, that you told me that, and, and, and I stumbled upon it. So um, just have a great time while you're doing your show, um, and enjoy yourself, and you're doing what you love, and, and uh, good for you, man. So if I could see it, I definitely will. I'm going to do my very, very best, I promise. So thank you for being with us, Rich Comeda, from an internment camp magic show. Weren't they amazing? Great interviews, and I just know you're going to enjoy their shows, so go see them. You can find more information and tickets on all of the shows at the 2018 Frigid Festival at www.horsetrade.info. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests, Andrea Alden from Molly's World, Mike Lemmy from 50th and 4th, and Rich Kameda from an internment camp magic show. You can find more episodes of your program as your ticket at facebook.com backslash your program as your ticket. I'm on Twitter at at program ticket. The website is your program is your ticket.com. How convenient is that? I'm also on YouTube. Search me out at your program is your ticket. There's some good videos there to watch. I'm on SoundCloud and iTunes. Rate me and write me a review and subscribe. All that stuff helps me and I appreciate it. Folks, take a little time to see a show this week and don't forget to give a smaller show some love. There's a lot of theater gems out there. Until our next show, good night, theater people and curtain. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. Rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.